Hello, and welcome to Storytelling Animals, a green new podcast of climate, ecology, and animal justice, where we try to make sense of the environmental crisis and think about what comes next, and that's precisely what we do in today's episode. My guests today are Troy Viteze and Drew Pendergrass, the authors of the upcoming verso title, Half-Earth Socialism, A Plan to Save the Future from Extinction, Climate Change, and Pandemics. Troy Viteze is an environmental historian who specializes in environmental economics, animal studies, and energy history. He has a PhD in history from New York University. Uh, he then worked at Harvard as a postdoc research fellow, which is uh, when he uh, wrote the bulk of this book, and is currently a fellow at the European University Institute in Italy. Drew Pendergrass is currently getting his PhD uh, in environmental engineering at Harvard, and that's where he got to know Troy. And the two of them, one the environmental historian, one the environmental engineer, worked together on this really unique and fascinating book, Half-Earth Socialism, which basically argues that we should rewild a lot of the Earth's surface, they propose half, to protect wild species, as well as for a number of other reasons that we will talk about, um, and that to free up this space, we should institute widespread veganism and reduce energy use in the global north, but we don't spend as much land growing food or uh, building renewable energy. And then in the second half, that the best way to do this would be through some central economic planning mechanism that we go into later in the podcast. So it's a longer than usual episode. Uh, so just going to quickly add, as always, that if you enjoy this, please send it to a friend, send it to a family member, post it on social media. We're a relatively new podcast, and I could really use your help getting the word out. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm here with Troy Viteze and Drew Pendergrass, the authors of Half-Earth Socialism, A Plan to Save the Future from Extinction, Climate Change, and Pandemics. Troy and Drew, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so I just wanted to ask first about the origin story of the book and how you two came to be working on it together. I'll start um, just because I wrote an essay for New Left Review back in 2018, and that was called To Freeze the Thames, and that basically made the argument that we have to look at extinction, uh, renewable energy, and geoengineering within a, a single frame, and because they all have to do with uh, land scarcity in different ways, and therefore we have to kind of plan our land use at a global scale to decide what kind of life we want, what kind of energy systems we want, uh, and all that. And then um, Verso, the press, asked me uh, about a year later to if I wanted to write a book based on that. And at that point, I was in uh, at Harvard, and uh, Drew wrote to me, um, kind of out of the blue, because he had read uh, the essay and we got a coffee and we didn't really know each other very well, but uh, I thought, and we were talking about working on a model together and then I thought it would be much more exciting to actually work with a, a scientist and uh, because we could complement uh, each other quite well and write a much more interesting book. But what, what, do, we, what do you think, Drew? Yeah, I, I read the To Freeze the Tim's essay and I was very excited by the um, 
the whole picture it presented. Um, you know, in science, a lot of problems are broken up into very discrete bits to be uh, thought about in, in detail. And that's a very good way of thinking about a lot of problems, but it's not a sufficient way of thinking about a problem as global and interconnected as the environmental crisis. So I found it a very thrilling essay and, uh, and, uh, and the collaboration with Troy has been a very fun way of us both, um, challenging each other and pressing each other, um, about our ideas about the environment and about socialism, about solutions to the environmental crisis. Um, this proven to be a very fun and, uh, and fruitful collaboration. Cool. Yeah. I really like the combination of the humanities and sciences. The book really covers a lot of ground from ecology to intellectual history, to economic planning, to a bunch of other things. But let's start with the title, which, as I mentioned, is Half-Earth Socialism. So for those who aren't familiar, uh, can you tell us about the concept of Half-Earth? I was just thinking, Drew, we could always just take turns more or less, unless it's like really obviously about Soviet mathematics, and then you can take the lead. <laughs> why don't you take? Why sure. don't you go first here? Yeah. So the half Earth is a, a concept um, that was popularized by the conservationist uh, E.O. Wilson, um, and the idea uh, in Wilson's framing is to um, protect half of the Earth. Um, uh, for uh, non-human species to allow non-human species to flourish to protect biodiversity. This is comes out of his work um, on biogeography uh, and on the relationship between habitat area and biodiversity. And so based on some studies he did on uh, islands, um, he found that the biodiversity of an area is has a relationship with the amount of land there. So if you have more land, you have uh, more species able to flourish. Uh, and... Um, he kind of extrapolates this to a global scale and thinks that to stave off the worst of mass extinction, you need to rewild about half the earth um, to protect uh, those species. And um, this is uh, an interesting uh, idea. It's an idea that um, I think we should um, take seriously, the idea of protecting biodiversity, biodiversity loss. Uh, we're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction in Earth's history. It's a, a catastrophe of world historical proportions. Um, it's bad not just for non-human life, but for, for human beings. Uh, in science, there's a term called uh, ecosystem services to describe the myriad ways in which um, you know a healthy biosphere supports human life through things like pollination of crops, etc. Um, so losing that is bad for us, but also just because we should care about the other things on the planet. So biodiversity matters and habitat uh, area is a major thing that protects biodiversity. Now, the problem with E.O. Wilson, uh, as many on the left know, is that he, he comes from a conservationist tradition that is not always uh, an environmentalist tradition that is not always centering uh, justice for uh the poor justice for, you know, people outside of the global North that tends to ally with uh, wealthy interests. Um, we talk in a great bit of detail in the book about the problematic history of conservation. Um, but uh, we think that the half earth idea should be made socialist and democratic so that, you know, people have a say in how this will work, but that biodiversity is a, is kind of non-negotiable. It's something that we should care about. It's something on the scale of, of climate change. So we're trying to navigate between those, those two poles. If I could add to that, I would say that we purposely called the book Half Earth Socialism because we did want to center the biodiversity crisis 
in a way that I think lots of uh, many liberals or socialists are quite happy to talk about climate change, but then they don't really care very much about extinction. And uh, there are many parts of the environmental crisis, uh, and of course climate change is very important, but we wanted to also center other aspects of it, uh, which is why we chose half of socialism. Um, the other thing is probably the most difficult part of our plan, as in if you really want to you know, prevent uh, you know, zoonotic disease or you know, sequester carbon, you do need lots of land for, you know, for renewable energy and so forth. But half the earth in terms of uh, conservation would be a gigantic task. I mean, obviously it's one of the largest uses of land that there is. So uh, that's an important reason to center it, but also because we wanted to stress that half earth, yeah, uh, is not possible within capitalism. And right now the conservation movement is very much dependent on billionaires like Ted Turner to buy up land. And that's a, that's a very you know, a foolish approach. Uh, and we think the environmental movement has to become uh, socialist and the socialist movement has to become environmentalist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Drew, you mentioned the concept of ecosystem services. On that note, one of the things that really struck me in the book is you tell this story, and I'm, I'm going to forget a bunch of the details, but basically the scientist spent $200 million trying to create an artificial habitat in bubbles, basically, that would be capable of sustaining eight human beings. And long story short, with all of their technical know-how, and money and resources, they failed catastrophically. So if we think about that they were not able to create a workable artificial habitat for eight humans, and then you think about we've got almost eight billion humans on this planet, it's really striking to think about just how reliant we are on the healthy functioning of this planet. Well, this is like another thing we're trying to do in the book where I think a lot of environmentalists, they think uh, we have to price nature so that it is valued, right? And like, I mean, what that experiment you talked about showed, which was the Biosphere 2 experiment in like the early 90s, um, was that, you know, to say the Earth or these ecosystems or the Amazon or whatever is worth so many billions of dollars is a meaningless number because we cannot replace these services, right? I mean, if they could spend yeah, $200 million to try to keep eight people alive on like a one hectare plot and it totally failed, then uh, what does it mean? Like, we cannot buy or uh, replace uh, the Earth's you know, climatic systems or ecology and so forth. This is completely meaningless. So the book then makes a big push for thinking about these problems in physical terms instead of monetary terms. Um, and this is where like, the bigger problem is a problem of exter externalities and how do you deal with externalities. And instead of trying to include them within the market, we're saying you have to have a socialist approach, which is uh, a set of total plans. But I don't want to get too, uh, too in the mm -hmm. weeds here, but that, that's how it relates to the broader argument of the book. Yeah, we'll definitely get more into planning later in the interview. But while we're on the subject of these physical constraints... We talked about that you want to uh, rewild half the land to service habitat for wild species and, and prevent the mass extinction. But what are some of the other constraints on land use and how did you become interested in land as something that's fundamental to this crisis? Well, I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind is so 
the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, they commissioned these model intercomparison projects, so climate models, uh, in support of their assessment reports. So uh, these are the big headline reports about the future of, of climate. Um, and these models are driven by an, uh, basically emission scenarios for different kind of socioeconomic futures that are proposed by some institutes. And, and, and so there's basically an economic model combined with a, a climate model. And those create emissions and then world modeling centers use those emissions to drive climate models. And that's how we estimate the future. And it's funny, these, these economy models, um, often rely very heavily on a, on a technology called BECS, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. The idea of BECS is that you have, um, you know, plantations of trees, uh, very large plantations of trees. We're talking like a, um, size of, uh, India or more. Uh, land covered in these trees. You have these plantations, you cut the trees down, you burn them for energy, you capture the carbon that is released when you burn the trees, and you bury it underground. And the idea is that this would be a negative emission energy source because the trees capture carbon as they grow, you burn them, you capture the carbon, you bury it. This is a fundamental part of pretty much every IPCC model uh, by the end of the century. You you emit a lot and then you use this technology to bury that those emissions. Um, so the problem of land is implicit in all of these models of the future. And it's, it's rarely talked about in these, these terms. The, the game of, uh, of planning for the future really has this, this land area element to it, regardless of, um, how you think about these questions. Um, the other thing is the, the livestock industry. Um, the meat industry is a huge land suck. Um, it, it takes up a massive amount of uh, the Earth's uh, habitable land mass, uh, both for uh, rangeland for animals and then for cropland to feed the animals. Something like, you know, 77% of the global soy crop goes to animals, not to people. Um, so it's a massive land suck. So if you take seriously that you need land to preserve habitat and um, uh, you uh, are thinking about these future climate models, right? Uh, we're not a big fan of, of BECS, but if that is the, what's in the models, then you quickly run out of area on the Earth's surface for all of what you want to do. Um, so we wanted to center this these trade-offs um, because they're really thought about in these terms. Yeah, so you mentioned the livestock industry is a major land user Another land user that we need to think about is renewable energy, uh, because wind turbines and solar panels uh, use more land to create a watt of energy than fossil fuels do. Some listeners might think, oh, well, wouldn't a nuclear power plant use at the very least less land than a wind or solar plant? But um, you aren't super excited about nuclear no. So, I mean, nuclear's power density, and power density is the relationship between energy output to land area, it's like watts to square meters. Um, it, it's not great. It's not fantastic. Uh, it tends to vary quite a bit because nuclear power plants tend to have different size protective areas or they need you know, different size reservoirs. Um, but... Even if it is higher than renewables, and it, it tends to be at least in like the hundreds of watts per square square meter versus only like the the single digits or the tens for for renewables, um, it has a lot of other problems. It's extremely expensive. Uh, you know, there isn't that much uranium in the world, especially if you 
build a huge number of reactors. So a lot of people, such as James Hansen, want to build out uh, you know, 4,000 reactors to increase the, the reactor fleet tenfold over the next generation or so. And at that point, you will quickly use up your uranium reserves if you have 4,000 reactors versus like 400 today. And that's why they put a lot in stock for new technologies for for nuclear, such as fast breeder reactors, which is seen as like this kind of cure-all because it actually produces plutonium as a byproduct, which is like, can be used as a fuel. Um, the thing is, fast breeders don't work very well. They tend to catch fire all the time because their coolant is liquid sodium, which is combustible with air. Uh, the other thing is, if you are mining that much uranium, very quickly the carbon intensity of nuclear becomes really bad because it takes a lot of energy to, to mine these plants. There isn't actually very good data on the carbon intensity of, of nuclear because the whole life cycle of nuclear um, hasn't been carried out very often. I mean, there's no permanent storage facilities you know, anywhere for, for nuclear, for toxic waste. But there's good reason to think that if we uh, do mine a lot of uranium, then it's going to be a very carbon intensive fuel, and therefore the whole point of it is, is kind of gone. And then there's the risk of having a meltdown, and um, the odds of another Fukushima or Chernobyl-scale disaster is about you know, one in two over the next generation with the current fleet. Um, and if you increase that tenfold, the odds of another disaster are pretty high indeed. So it's it, there's lots of good reasons to be skeptical of nuclear. And then there's the more you know, democratic or political tactical reason, which is nuclear power is the only thing that's very popular amongst environmentalists. I mean, it's the only thing that wins referendums. And uh, it's really been at the core of the environmental movement since the, since the 60s. Um, and to have a, a, you know, a pragmatic environmentalist leadership of people like Schellenberger or Hansen you know, betray the environmental rank and file in this way, to us just seems very foolish. I mean, you're not going to, you need to mobilize people for, uh, to overcome the environmental crisis. And if you're going to rely on nuclear power, you're going to demobilize your base. I think it's also worth pointing out that um, nuclear is sometimes touted as sort of a uh, cure-all um, solution, um, but uh, it's it's not. If you build, you know, tenfold number of nuclear plants, it's not like you're all of a sudden solving the climate crisis because part of the climate crisis, uh, in terms of uh, emissions, is coming from the fact that you know something like eighty percent of um, energy use is off of the electrical grid. So things like for transportation or industry, you're burning fuels directly rather than relying on the electrical grid. And nuclear only helps you decarbonize the electrical grid if we take for granted that there are no carbon emissions from nuclear. Um, and uh, so it makes the problem look easier than it is in a way by kind of focusing so single-mindedly on nuclear. Um, and I'll just add also that we're not um, saying that we should close all nuclear plants tomorrow. Our reaction is mostly against uh, this radical desire to just build huge numbers of nuclear plants as if this will will solve all of our problems. Um, yeah, if I could yeah. add to that, that even if they build, you know, these 4,000 new reactors, uh, that would only fill out the electrical demands of today, right? So it wouldn't actually cut into other uh, you know, energy requirements. So it's only, it's always going to be a partial solution, as, as Drew's saying. Uh, 
we need to have energy quotas and we need to, uh, you know, get people out of cars and do many other things, which people who are very pro-nuclear don't want to talk about. They want to say, we'll have this clean fuel and then everything else can stay the same. It's like a, it's a very partial solution that is just fixing one technical problem and keeping the rest of society more or less the same. And we're saying this is like a really foolish approach and it's just not going to work and it's bad politics. Mm -hmm. You mentioned energy quotas. So in the book, there are a couple ways that we could reduce our land use. Uh, the first is, well, if a lot of land is going to go to renewable energy, we could simply use less energy and institute an energy quota that would, re would allow people in the global south to use more energy than they currently do, but would require uh, pretty dramatic cutbacks in the global north, in particular the United States. Another way to use less land is to change how we do food production and, uh, you know, institute a widespread veganism and vegan food production. So I like both of these ideas, um, but when we're talking about widespread veganism and energy quotas, are you, are you worried that these might be a bit of a tough sell? Now, this book isn't, I think, let me start again. I think what we wanted to do with this book was to treat our readers with some respect, where I think a lot of environmentalists and also socialists, they want to say problems of socialism or of overcoming the environmental crisis won't be that bad. They don't want to scare uh, supporters or, or readers. They want to say, oh, if it's a few little technical changes and things will be fine. And at the same time, they're saying, you know, uh, these problems are immense, right? These problems are gigantic. As in, we're going to destroy the world. We're going to cause mass extinction. We're going to have new pandemics uh, all the time. And, and one can go on, right? As in, we're seeing a really hellish future. Um, so I think there's just like a huge gap uh, in that analysis. And what we're trying to say is, yeah, like, you know, things are really bad and they're going to get really bad. This is a huge problem and they're going to require really drastic changes if you want to, to fix it. And I think that's, I think for anyone to believe, I think like no one seriously believes it's going to be a, like a minor fix. Like we only need to have electric cars and then things will be fine. I think that's, I think people in their heart of hearts know it's going to be harder about than that. That's why people, I think, are so depressed and so uh, you know gloomy about the future because we're not having these real discussions. So we are saying, you know, we have these problems. A lot of them have to do with with land use, with energy use. But if we we can solve all those problems using existing technology. We don't have to rely on really risky new technologies like geoengineering or like space mirrors or you know something ridiculous or like fusion technology, fusion nuclear power, which really has no chance of ever working. Um, we don't have to rely on these things. We can't solve all our problems. We can provide the good life for everyone and have a environmentally you know, stable ecosystem like a biosphere right that's possible but it will there will be trade-offs and uh, to me that's just I just said as an honest reckoning and the the idea of the book is is twofold one is that you know, socialism is people collectively deciding uh, what our economy is and how much we take from nature and then there's our approach saying we think um, based on these numbers that this is a good set of trade-offs, right? As in, you won't have a big mansion and a SUV, but you'll have, uh, you'll have, you know, equality and, uh, you know, uh, you won't have climate change or, you know, you can solve these problems. And 
people, I think, have to decide where they want to make those trade-offs. They could say, well, we want nuclear or we want to have geoengineering. But I think we need to have an honest debate about what trade-offs we're willing to make. The idea that we, won't, we don't need to make any trade-offs is just foolish. Yeah, this is a part of the, the mission of the book is to kind of um, modeled off of this, um, this uh, kind of obscure socialist uh, loss to history from the early 20th century, Otto Neurath, and, and his idea that kind of democracy could consist of um, kind of a, a variety of utopias that we can choose from, a variety of futures that we can envision that are um, rooted in some sort of analysis of, 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 you know, materials available to us. And you might say that we can have a bunch of meat, uh, we can use fossil fuels, and then we'll uh, roll the dice and fly some strain planes up to the stratosphere to spray sulfur aerosols uh, and reflect back the sun, and then maybe uh, hold our breaths and hope that we can figure out massive carbon capture technology, um, maybe without BECs, because that would compete with our livestock quota. Um, that's a future that you can do. Um, or there's a various kinds of restraints that you can think about. And there's no, science is not going to tell you the true path. Um, all these decisions are going to be value laden. All science can do is help um, inform the decision. Um, but we want us to have that discussion and honestly think about these trade-offs and about what future we might want to live in and what sacrifices or risks we are willing to take to make that future happen. Mm -hmm. I want to get into some of the intellectual history you go through in the book of different philosophical approaches toward nature and what humans' ideal interactions with the rest of nature look like. Um, I won't ask you to get into everything that you talk about in the book, but uh, you know, people who are excited by the word socialism and the title of your book might be curious about what you have to say about Karl Marx and where his philosophy of nature Maybe you fall short in your view. True, I'll, I'll take this because it's, I guess, more my chapter. But um, I, I'll say, you know, there's been a trend in recent years for Marxists to uh, develop a subfield of, you know, eco-socialism or eco-Marxism. And there's been plenty of authors like Jason Moore, John Bailey Foster, and Andreas Malm and, and all that. And there's been a lot of good work done in this field, and we need more eco-socialist theory. We disagree with some of it that um, is too optimistic or, you know, looks at Marx with these uh, rose-tinted, you know, glasses in terms of seeing Marx as uh, an eco-thinker. And we think that it's a mistake to overlook uh, how Marx's project is really um, antithetical to environmentalism. And this is the idea of a like, Prometheanism, right? As in socialism... Uh, is a society of plenty, of, of abundance. It exists in the realm of freedom, as they like to say. And that's only possible because of uh, nature has been totally dominated and we have this, this plenty that we can rest from, from nature. Um, we're saying this is a very foolish and dangerous idea because the more you try to dominate nature, the more side effects are going to occur. And a good example of that is zoonotic disease. I mean, if you uh, 
know, let alone the domesticated animals, which is a, a source of, of disease, but you also are deforesting and changing landscapes. So you are going to uh, destabilize uh, ecosystems and then uh, pathogens are going to cross over to livestock and to humans. And we see this happening again and again and again. So a totally en you know, enlightened world or totally humanized world would be a world of catastrophe and um, it's not just zoonotic disease but climate change and other other environmental disasters are linked to us intervening in nature too much right um, and this in terms of the intellectual history i'll try to just sketch it briefly but we look at three thinkers and we're saying like the marxist tradition is linked to hegel and hegel is a late 18th century early uh, 19th century philosopher, and he comes up with this idea of the humanization of nature, and he says that humans see nature uh, as a oppositional force uh, and that has to be uh, overcome through labor. And then when, once we put our consciousness into nature through labor by changing, yeah, I like to say like a, changing a river into a canal or something like that, then we become reconciled to nature. This is, this is the process of history that he talks about, right? Um, and then, you know, and ironically, Hegel was killed by a new zoonotic disease. He was killed by cholera, which emerged during his own lifetime and, and ended up killing him. Right, um, that's that's one approach, which is still very prominent amongst socialists today. The other thing is is, is Malthus, who is uh, a, an economist and, and parson, and he comes up with this anti-utopian theory uh, because he's trying to dampen the hopes of utopians during the Enlightenment and the French Revolution in the eight in the eighteenth century. And he's saying there's always going to be poor people because people are always going to have more children if there's any kind of surplus. Um, and therefore, the only way to you know, check this population growth is through famines and wars and disease and all that. And having you know, abundance for all is impossible. So this is, uh, Malthus tends to be the environmentalist kind of thinker of choice. And this was especially true like in the 60s and 70s, but still to an extent today. Um, and Marxists, of course, you know, hate this, uh, hate Malthus. Um, for the reasons that are, should be pretty obvious. And then the last thinker we look at is, is Jenner, and he comes up with uh, the first vaccine. And he comes up with the vaccine against smallpox. And what's interesting about Jenner is that he, he um, is correct in, in seeing that disease comes from humans being too close to other species. So he sees the root of disease from his... Uh, intermingling of, of domesticated animals and humans. And, and then we argue, therefore, we need to separate ourselves uh, at some level from nature if we want to prevent disease from emerging. And we need to you know, not engage in the humanization of nature if we want to protect ourselves. So those are, our, we call this like an ecological skepticism. And these are our three uh, environmental thinkers that help navigate the book. Yeah, I want to raise an objection that I'm sure will be made to your book and that you have already pointed out with respect to the original Half-Earth proposal from E.O. Wilson, which is that a lot of plans that involve um, setting off a parcel of nature as, as separate from human can have uh, negative consequences for humans. So for instance, in the US, 
a lot of the national parks uh, used to be indigenous land and sometimes establishing in those parks involved kicking the indigenous people off their land. Um, in Africa, a lot of wildlife parks have fraught relationships with the people who live around them. We might also, you know, in addition to these justice-related concerns, we might also worry about um, more culturally and philosophically if there's something negative to join uh, firm lines between human and nature. So maybe this will get into some of the planning issues that we foreshadowed earlier, but what does a half-earth society look like that doesn't recreate some of these harms toward humans, in particular indigenous humans, um, and also that avoids possible negative consequences of treating nature as something totally separate and unrelated to humanity? Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, this is a, this is a really important point. And I think it's important to stress that um, humans and nature do have, obviously, a, a, an intertwined relationship. Like, we are animals, like all other animals. Um, uh, I think it's important to think about degrees of, of domination of nature versus um, other forms of relationships with nature. So there's, there's many ways to exist with nature. Um, we point out in the book that biodiversity is often higher on indigenous managed lands than in, uh, you know, national parks, as sort of imagined by, you know, the Teddy Roosevelt's of the world. And um, so clearly there are many ways for human beings in nature to, um, you know, exist in uh, mutually beneficial and, and, you know, uh, harmonious relationships. And we also point out in the book that, um, prior to colonization of uh, the Americas, um, there were very few diseases um, among indigenous peoples here, even though they uh, organized quite complex and large societies, uh, even cities. And that was because of uh, uh, animals, animal husbandry did not uh, take on the same form as, as in Europe. It was, it was very limited uh, if it existed at all. Um, and so this is really remarkable that the disease only went one direction rather than a bi-directional exchange. Um, so there are obviously ways of existing even in a complex society with nature in a way that that doesn't damage it. So um, we're, yeah, we're not positing a hard boundary between humans and nature, but we are pointing out that uh, that relationship can get really, really nasty in a way that can sometimes be evaded in insisting on uh, erasing the, the human nature boundary. Um, you can always uh, question these arbitrary lines that are philosophically drawn, right? Any binary is going to be troubled. The question is, is it, is it a useful way if you skeptically to kind of think about, uh, you know, a right relationship? Um, so, and to answer your second question, um, or to start to answer it, what we imagine is sort of like an expansion of democracy, broadly speaking, an expansion of democracy uh, to the economy, um, and an expansion of democracy to the question of what should our relationship with nature be? What, what should that interchange look like? What, uh, you know, what parts of nature are we going to fully dominate and humanize into our own vision? What parts are going, going to leave alone or leave to a, a different form of relationship, uh, you know, a more uh, harmonious or, or whatever relationship with nature? Um, and we think that that can only be decided democratically through an informed kind of public that is uh, able to see these trade-offs and, and uh, mechanisms working and able to make an informed decision about what we 
as a planet would like to do. I would just say something real brief. Um, and I, that is, you know, I'm an environmental historian. We deal with environmental philosophy all the time. But I would push against the, like a Haraway-in, you know, a Glaturian approach where saying, you know, hybridity is good and, you know, the whole like, Cartesian nature culture division, that's some kind of wicked source of all our problems. I think it's not useful in lots of ways to, to prize hybridity uh, at all costs or uh, uncritically. I mean, the fact that, yeah, we get diseases from animals and we also cause pathogen pollution amongst animals as well. I mean, what, what was that one disease? Like a third of these gorillas in one uh, reserve, they all got uh, Ebola from us or some other kind of new disease. And it yeah it wiped out a third of the population on this reserve. And there's many other cases of uh, you know us causing problems because we are mingling too much with with nature and i'm sure we you know we they are part human and we are part animal but this i think also looks like really nightmarish right and in a way where the world is a very sick uh unstable place and i mean is that something to be celebrated or the fact that oh we engage in geoengineering and we're mixing you know human consciousness with with the the heavens and changing uh molecules really you know miles uh, above us is that is that a good thing i mean i feel like uh academic you know fashions are not always useful ways to think about these problems. As Drew's saying, we have to say, like, do we want to have really industrialized agriculture or do we want to have like some kind of vegan organic agriculture, maybe with like slightly lower yields, but we will have greater, you know, biodiversity, soil health and so forth. So I think um, I think we need to be questioning these philosophies that don't give us any leverage in terms of criticizing the environmental crisis. I think that's a huge problem. And when you say hybridity, uh, can you briefly define that for those of us who aren't environmental historians or philosophers? Well, this comes from actor network theory. This is uh, Calon and Law and Latour um, in the 80s and 90s and uh, lots of other thinkers like, like Haraway. And, you know, there's a probably this is most clearly laid out in Latour's book, We Had Never Been Modern, saying, you know, there's like this modern constitution, as he put it, between uh, of dualisms. Right, so the nature culture being one of them, but instead, you know, we have not been modern because we have always been mixed between the two of them, and um, and and sure, you can see, and again, many other thinkers uh, stress this, but they also think that this, as they, you know, they say, called Cartesianism, is the 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 start or the cause of the environmental crisis, right? This like search for purity and seeing nature as separate. I think. They're right to some extent where it has caused definitely some some problems, but I think one also needs to remain a Marxist and say that uh, capitalism is causing uh, the environmental crisis in a way that is unprecedented in non-capitalist societies. Um, and then we also need to imagine what yeah how, what kind of relationship do we want with nature because um, we're not. Uh, primitivists. We're not saying people should go back to being hunter-gatherers, right? We're saying we need to have some kind of ex uh, exchange with nature. The question is, you know, how much uh, should we take and how much should we risk? 
uh, as well. And I think these are the things that have to be discussed in an eco-socialist society uh, and kind of remove remove the, the veil over these problems that exist in our society. Because right now, no one talks about, well, if we have a huge you know, animal livestock industry, we're risking disease or we're uh, causing extinctions uh, at a huge rate, or especially insect extinctions that will also damage our crops and, and so forth. I mean, we're not we're not having these discussions. We're just like blindly hurtling forward to to the future. I'll just briefly add that um, over half of all carbon emissions have happened since 1990. You know, when the world market expands throughout the entire world, and we have this massive. Um, capitalism is finally dominant over the planet. Um, almost all of the deforestation of the Amazon has happened since 1990. The question is, did we get more Cartesian since 1990? Did Cartesian dualism take off to a more extreme extent than ever before? Um, and I think that it's just not going to give us the explanatory power we need to overcome this crisis that we're in right now. Uh, the capitalists, analyzing capitalism through this Marxist lens, that is going to be more helpful. Right. So you might say um, that even if there's no firm line between nature and culture, like some people have tried to draw, there's also a meaningful difference between, say, a river and a canal, to use your previous example. Right. There's a line that I, I heard once um, that was like um, comparing a tree to to stratospheric geoengineering and that they can both be considered technologies when they're used by humans. And this is obviously true, right? Like when humans use anything, it's, it's a form of technology. But the question is, is that a helpful way of helping us understand the environmental crisis and overcoming it? Is conflating a tree with, with uh, stratospheric geoengineering useful for us in this moment of crisis? And I would say that this idea is not as useful as its uh, predominance in the literature might have you believe. Part of what this gets at is your idea that ecosystems and atmospheric uh, systems uh, are simply too complex to be planned or managed in a top-down way. The book is in some ways a response to uh, the economists who started the neoliberalism movement in the 1900s who are arguing against economic planning. They're saying that you know, no one person can plan the economy, it's too complicated, we just need to rely on markets. Um, but one of your responses to them is that there's really no mechanism here to deal with environmental uh, consequences and externalities. So because ecology is so complex, we can't just plan on being able to engineer ourselves out of these crises. And we do, in fact, need uh, to plan the economy. So You've mentioned before, what's the short case for economic planning? Um, I'll start real quick, and then Drew, please jump in. But uh, basically what we're saying is that the neoliberal, because the book is a very close engagement with neoliberalism, right? I mean, we're socialists, but we're saying socialists can learn things from neoliberals, but also uh, the neoliberal critique of socialism is, a, is an important one. And that really is one based on, on knowledge, as in 
uh, it, it is hard to know what is going on in an economy. Uh, it is hard for central planners to, to gather this information that is dispersed amongst you know, millions of people across the world. And what the market does, it, it acts like a giant computer where it takes all these decisions from all these people and distills it in the form of price. And therefore, uh, everything should be put on market lines right? or put on a market logic um, because we have market acts like a kind of uh, super intelligence that is more rational than anything else. Um, so what we say is, and it's interesting with the neoliberals that they are different from other economists where instead of taking uh, 19th century physics as their model where all the variables are known and it's kind of this billiard ball, you know, Newtonian uh, uh, kind of mathematics, um, which is what you see in kind of neoclassical equilibrium analysis, right? There's no problem of knowledge there. They they have, they know all the variables, right? And then what neoliberals are saying that that's that's wrong because uh, the the market is more like uh, nature, where you know, biologists they can't know everything about an an animal or an ecosystem, but they can uh, determine some relationships or patterns, and uh, that's about all they can they can do. So this kind of like limited analysis is available. Um, and again, Hayek's unusual where he doesn't compare the market, or he doesn't say the economist should be like a biologist. He doesn't say the economist should be like a theologian, where uh, the the market is like the sacred divine um, institution. And what we're saying is that nature is much more complex. So if you go just based according to the neoliberal zone logic, saying, you know, politics is where we can know things, and therefore we have to decide what is uh, what is knowable, like what can we politically decide upon. And uh, the economy is much simpler than, than nature, but also we have to constrain the economy if there's going to be a chance of protecting the natural world from being yeah, totally humanized, like totally you know, commodified. Uh, we need to have some limits uh, on its growth. And therefore we have to uh, plan the economy and therefore, and, and because we are relying on this natural world that we cannot fully know. Um, and that's, that's the basic argument of the book. Um, Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about economic planning based on those uh, those principles? Sure. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to have to pause in about a minute to, you know, change the host of this Zoom meeting. So I'll, I'll note that and I will pause and then I will resume. Hopefully it'll only take a minute. Um, but um, yeah, so yeah, um, I'll, I'll start here. Just because uh, we think that uh, the economy being a human creation is the thing we should focus on planning rather than, than nature, um, doesn't mean that planning an economy is easy. And we don't just hand wave this problem away. We try and do um, some deep engagement with this, this challenge, the challenge of, of creating a democratic economy, of expanding institutions of democracy beyond the merely political sphere, but uniting politics and economics into one sphere where, where um, conscious democratic deliberation kind of uh, is over everything, which is the socialist dream in, the, in a sense. It's a challenging dream because the economy is very complicated and because attempts to control it consciously in the past have not gone so well. Um, so in the third chapter of the book, uh, we begin with an engagement of a, of, a, of a 
mathematician named Leonid Kantorovich. And Kantorovich was a uh, Soviet mathematician. Um, he's the only uh, Soviet mathematician uh, to win the a Soviet a person in general to win the uh, what is incorrectly called the Nobel Prize in, in economics, um, but for his his achievement in uh, algorithm called linear programming. And what linear programming is able to do is um, optimize faster than far faster than any previous algorithm um, uh, a function with um, inequalities as constraints, um, basically constrained optimization. So what does this mean? It means that you could kind of lay out the constraints of a factory or uh, an industry or, as Kuntorovich mentioned, an entire economy. Um, so like how much resources are available, what is the labor power available, etc. And then um, use this algorithm to kind of optimize some ideal allocation of these, these resources, some rational economy-wide allocation. So yeah, so Kantorovich, you know, had this algorithm called uh, linear programming, which allows you to, um, yeah, set up some constraints, like what materials are constraining us, and then have a, an optimization function. So like, um, you know, maximizing maybe consumer goods or something like that, some goal. And this allows you to calculate an optimal way of achieving that goal, given your constraints. So it's a really interesting algorithm. It's, uh, it has huge number of uses in economics, but also uh, as a something that's widely used in capitalist businesses today. Um, there's a lot of literature right now in using linear programming to plant renewable energy systems. It's just a super useful algorithm. And it's it's interesting uh, for its philosophical implications. Kantorovich kind of saw it as a, a way of, of planning in natura, so in, in natural units, in, in units of um, materials available, and of reforming the Soviet materials balances method of planning, so this sort of um, kind of groping of a dark method of central planning. Uh, um, so he, he kind of does some, some limited applications of, of this algorithm um, to some industries, and you know he does it to railroad card production and dramatically reduces the amount of scrap metal produced. But of course, in the um, uh, terrible political climate of the Soviet Union, this was viewed as sabotage, right? How, could, how dare you sabotage the scrap metal supply? Um, so the political will was not there, although it comes a few years later um, with the changing of the guard and a sort of reform movement in the, the Eastern Bloc. Um, linear programming is taken up for a very brief period as a possible way of, of reforming um, planning offices, but it, it doesn't happen for a variety of reasons. And, um, and, uh, one of those most important reasons is, is a lack of democracy, we point out, a lack of um, a kind of institutions able uh, or movements able to counteract the sclerotic dire direction of these, these planning offices, a lack of willingness to go uh, to supply information uh, clearly because uh, people are acting in their own interests and these interests are not aligned. Um, and, uh, and, and then also this algorithm is not going to be sufficient to plan an economy, right? This, this linear optimization um, requires a lot of centralization of information um, uh, and so on. So, so we, we go on to kind of take inspiration from other experiments in planning and from algorithms to kind of think about uh, how to supplement linear programming. But we still keep like this idea of using tools, including linear programming, to create outlines of the future, to create visions of the future, uh, maybe several of them. So you might create a blueprint using using linear programming in concert with other tools. So like a high energy use blueprint with um, high levels of meat consumption 
um, what might that look like? And then maybe a, a half-earth socialist future, and then maybe some in-between or some other, other ideas. Um, and you get some rough ideas of what the world might look like and what it might look like to people uh, living in, in various places. And that can inform some sort of vote on the path forward we take. So, so we like this idea, um, but we don't think that this method is sufficient. So we go into some, some other ideas. Um, we look at the CyberSIM experiment in Chile in the 1970s uh, under Salvador Allende's Democratic Socialist Revolution. So Allende comes to power in the 19, early 1970s, uh, democratically elected. He wants a democratic path to, to socialism. Um, so he's nationalizing industries, et cetera. Um, and he really wants to differentiate himself from both the, the American and the Soviet way. So a, a third, a third path, um, forward. And part of this path is, um, is, uh, uh some, some Chilean engineers were, were, um, confronting the challenges of running an increasingly large state sector, an increasingly large sector of the economy. And so they, they asked this, uh, uh, cybernetician named Stafford Beer, cybernetics being kind of an in vogue sort of area in the time about, um, you know, sort of a diffuse set of academic ideas. But, um, they, they invite Stafford Beer over to kind of think about a way of devising a, a management system using some technology for the, the state sector. And this becomes, the Cybersyn project. This becomes the Cybersyn project. Um, and the idea of the core of Cybersyn is this kind of management model that Beer devised. Um, and the idea is a non-hierarchical uh, system of uh, kind of relationships at different levels of, of localization. So you would have maybe a, a factory that might be self-governed and able to handle its operations most of the time, but it does need to coordinate with other factories with materials coming in. And uh, so there's sort of a, a, a level of supervision of coordination between factories, making sure that everything daily is working good. Everyone has what they need. Um, and then um, all of this kind of to meet some democratically agreed on vision of what the economy should be. Um, but if there's an emergency or um, uh, we need to direct kind of longer term things, there's sort of an additional level of coordination that can handle intervene in emergencies, um, it can uh, provide broader directions. And there are sort of these five interlocking levels kind of inspired by biology. And uh, what's interesting about this model is it did prove its worth in this um, CIA-supported truckers' strike in Chile. So uh, a lot of these truckers were um, uh, uh, not going to do the logistics necessary to govern this economy, and it threatened to overthrow Allende's government. Uh, it was a truly a massive crisis, but there were some truckers who were still uh, loyal to the socialist experiment. And the, most of the factory workers were still kind of on Allende's side. So the question was, how can we manage our limited trucking supply to, to handle this? And so using Wait, only these very what, primitive telex. What was the numbers yeah. again? It was like 40,000 on strike and like 200 trucks available or like four, was it 4,000 and 200 it's, or something? Yeah. I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's very few trucks. Like it, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's a very big challenge. Um, and so uh, what's really cool is that they were able to use this network of, of telex machines, which is like more, more simple than a fax machine, like the most simple machine you can imagine, uh, to coordinate uh, this, this, um, these very few trucks and keep the economy going pretty much fine. Um, 
and they withstand the strike and the government continues. Um, and it's because this management structure kind of is in service of the people on the ground, right? Like the, the workers in the factory know what they need and this sort of management structure is kind of in dialogue and in service of that. There's something very inspiring about this. It's, it's a management structure that seems very um, interesting and able to handle a crisis very well. And something that like this rigid plan, like broad plan, right, might not be able to, to handle. And we go into some uh, algorithmic development since then, like in, in climate science, where I work, um, uh, there's, there's this field called data assimilation, which funnily enough uses a lot of Kentorovich's mathematics in, behind it. But the idea of data assimilation is that we have uh, the weather system right out in the world. It's extremely complicated. It's a chaotic system. People have heard about the butterfly effect, right? A butterfly flapping its wings will cause, you know, a hurricane on the other side of the world. This is a bit of an exaggeration, but it's not that much of an exaggeration. Uh, very small differences in initial conditions in a weather system causes very massive changes down the road. This is why you can't get an accurate weather forecast, even in theory, beyond 10 days. Um, the system is too complicated. So data simulation works by combining observations from satellites, from aircraft, from buoys in the ocean, from service monitors, etc., to create kind of uh, an up-to-date knowledge of what the atmosphere is doing and using that to update supercomputer models of how the weather system works and use those to generate accurate forecasts. And most of the uh, accuracy increases in forecasts have come from better information systems, not from improved weather science. We've kind of understood the weather science for a very long time. Uh, it's the information that's what's improved. And when COVID struck and a bunch of planes stopped flying, our weather forecast got about 10% less accurate because we didn't have the same level of information input. It's a complex global information system that already exists. Um, and so we, we imagine that you might have something similar working kind of in this uh, management structure that's inspired by beer that, that might be able to um, also use uh, some sort of model of what we expect the economy to be to, uh, and then when things go wrong, we can kind of use those observations of things going wrong to kind of identify where problems might be happening. So it's a way of kind of fusing um, the past with some some interesting new algorithms. Um, so we kind of offer all this as as food for thought in, in what might be uh, a future, um, you know, of economic democracy, um, where we don't have the all the details down. Uh, yeah, we're still really thinking about this problem actively, but but the the raw materials are are there to imagine, uh, and the technology is there to imagine, you know, a, a, a rational, coordinated economic democracy. I think it's important to repeat that this isn't just a central computer coming up with a plan that everyone is forced at gunpoint to follow. Um, that this is, you know, people deciding on what they are trying to accomplish, uh, a system coming up with a variety of plans that people then choose between, um, and there's sort of a course grain central plan, but in the case of unforeseen circumstances or even just the need to adapt to local circumstances that uh, regions and localities would be able to come up with their own local plans that fit within the larger plan, again, democratically, Right. Yeah. The global vision would be much more, uh, is much more designed about, uh, the global vision is much more designed around things like, um, you know, good living within planetary boundaries. So like what is sort of the, uh, energy use we need? What is the sort of food system we need? Where are regions where these things make sense to 
to place, um, you know, with some input from those regions, right? Like a, a sort of procedure where you can work these out. And then and those kind of broad requirements with some kind of regional differentiation would then be detailed at lower levels of, of locality, like more local levels, more regional and local uh, governments would kind of fit within that, that broader constraint, um, but uh, have wide freedom in how, how they, um, do that. And this is kind of in response to Hayek's critique of the concentration of knowledge, right? Like that uh, tacit local um, uh, decision makers are going to know things that can't really be passed along to the center or will be aggregated away into uselessness. So there's a, there's a balance between uh, coordination and, um, uh, and uh, localization that but we try and strike. I want here. to stress that we almost make the unpopular you know, decision to say centralization to some extent is important, right? I think there is a, a tendency on the left, especially amongst anarchists, to think that this totally decentralized, you know, uh, uh, you know self-governing communities uh, would that would be then enough for uh, some kind of utopian society. And we're saying that's probably not what we need when we're facing global problems, right? I mean, we need to decide as a species at some level to engage in certain projects such as an energy transition or, uh, or you know, reforesting much of the world. Um, and there, in, the, in terms of like neoliberalism, I guess one could say that the neoliberals are right. Like a, a single person obviously you know, knows their situation very well, right? But they can only see their perspective. And you also do need to see some uh, problems from a much broader perspective. The fact that we're all just consumers focusing on our own place within the market is one reason why we can't get anything done, right? We need to decide collectively how to solve certain problems. That's where uh, one could turn the critique against um, the neoliberals saying you know, tacit knowledge is great for some things, but it's useless for other things. And we need to have uh, some centralized decision-making to solve certain problems. So one of the many things that's exciting about Half-Earth Socialism is that there is going to be a video game uh, that accompanies the book where people can try their own hand at planning a Half-Earth Socialist future. So could you tell us a little bit about where that idea came from, uh, when we can expect it, and what the game is, is going to look like? Uh, the game will come out in early May, so a couple of weeks after the book. And it's funny where we were talking to a bunch of designers about making a website for the book. And we were saying we wanted something simple to show the linear program Drew was talking about. And in the book, we actually have a linear program where, uh, you know, we talk about people trading off between or trying to um, optimize various goals, be it, you know, land that's protected for nature preserves or reproduction or whatever it is. And, um, and that was supposed to be on the site as well. And then we talked to the, the Trust Group, which is a, a design network in Berlin, and they said, we won't just make you a website, we'll make you a game. 
Okay, and then we were just very intrigued by that, and um, we went along with it. But it's perfect in lots of ways because you know again, Drew mentioned that we're very much influenced by Otto Neurath, who is uh, a philosopher very few people have heard of, but he is uh, very important for us in lots of ways. Uh, and he's also important because he's the one that really starts the socialist calculation debate that leads to the creation of neoliberalism. As the neoliberals were responding to his vision of socialism. And uh, just to keep things short, I would say that Neurath uh, thought that socialism was making the economy visible to people. And you did that by education, I mean, by educating them. So what you did, what he, what he did was he was a museum curator and he developed a, a, a language of a graphic design to show economic data uh, simply. Um, and he did this through something called isotype. So he would, you know, have certain symbols for, I don't know, electrical production or, you know, meat production or whatever it was. And then he would encourage workers to go to his exhibitions and they would be able to see the economy. And this is where like, neoliberalism is reacting against this by saying the economy, the economy is unknowable. Right. And what the game is doing is that it's operating on very Neuratian principles. It's saying that we need to have a society where people debate uh, future plans and they can make their own plans. Like anyone can be a planner as well. So people can say, you know, I want to you know, keep me production or I want nuclear power. And then they can play the game and kind of see, see what happens at some level. Right. And uh, so it's supposed to be an educational game, but hopefully also a fun game. And, um, much more political than other games because there are some climate games out there, but we also are trying to show the diversity of these radical movements from you know, ecofeminism to Malthusianism to um, you know, thinkers from the global south and, and make that part of the game as well to show that it's not going to be a purely you know, <coughs> technical solution to these problems, but also uh, a matter of understanding the world and um, and politics. Yeah, I'll just add briefly that the game, we do try and be as constrained by science <coughs> as possible. So there is a climate model that actually runs in the game called Hector, which is developed by the Pacific Northwest National Lab. It's called a mini climate model. And our, our developer, Francis, figured out a way to compile this, this uh, program so that it runs in the browser, which is really a remarkable achievement of software engineering on its own. So it's, it's a true like, um, climate model. And then we have used uh, the scientific literature to kind of make estimates of the impacts of various technologies and various you know, potential uh, interventions. And so we try and make it really real, right? And um, we also try, we make the game where this was a very deliberate decision so that it enforces no prior, um, uh, no prior like a uh, set of uh, technologies or decisions. Like uh, we obviously have our biases, but the game allows you to do whatever you want, even things that we think are pretty nasty. Um, so you can try it out yourself and see what, see what happens um, in a way that we try and do as honestly as possible. Um, so, uh, well, we really think that, uh, yeah, using video games as an exercise in democracy, you know, maybe this is something that'll be part of our, our future. Yeah, I'll say for me personally that some of the most invigorating parts of the book where, where you actually put your own uh, linear programming model, I don't know if model is the right word, but to work um, and say, you know, okay, if 80% of the world is vegan and 20% is vegetarian and, you know, X percent of our energy comes from renewable sources 
and uh, there's a global energy quota of X watts per person, then you can actually say like, oh, we'd have this much land left over for rewilding and, and carbon emissions would, would go up by this much. And it was just kind of fun to, you know, whatever the numbers were, it was fun to actually think through what could the future look like. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to playing the video game. I just have one more question. I know we've gone a little longer than we planned, um, but just because I think this is something that's important to really understand what you're trying to do with the book is that from the beginning you frame it as a utopian project, um, and actually at the end, the last chapter is basically a, a delightful little short story imagining what life in the centrally planned half-Earth uh, society might look like. Um, so, yeah, why why was it important to you to to frame this as a utopian project? Yeah, so this comes from uh, Otto Neurath again. Um, he uh, he has this idea of what he calls scientific utopias, and the idea is that yeah, to facilitate this sort of democracy, you have yeah some sort of blueprint for the future, and a variety of these blueprints that are you know plausible, right? Um, that have been produced by some way that's materially uh, reasonable. And then you could de decide between those, right? So you need these utopian, uh, he calls these social engineers, um, uh, like these, uh, these visions of the future that, you know, uh, would be constructed with democratic input and then decided democratically. Um, so that's sort of, um, there's that inspiration. And then we also wanted to get outside a little bit of, um, our immediate moment uh, where things seem so hard to even do basic um, change, right? Um, this moment where, you know, uh, in my personal activism, I found it very hard to advance goals that are woefully insufficient for the uh, energy transition that we'll need. Um, so we wanted to kind of take a breather from that and from doom and gloom and get excited about the future. Um, so we kind of wanted a utopian, uh, a utopian book because it would be uh it's it opens our imagination up in a way that i think is is necessary at this moment i'll add that um a couple of things first of all that again the book is an engagement with neoliberalism and we cast neoliberals as these anti-humanist uh utopians right like they have complete faith that the market is this like, perfect, omniscient institution, and they really believe in this, and that's why they're able to strive towards realizing this, you know, future where everything is on a market, right? All, all nature, all of society is uh, uh, managed through markets, and this has been important for them because it lets them understand the world and understand problems and work towards. Uh, you know, certain solutions that they like, and they have been successful in remaking the world. And we're saying the left and environmentalists and other social movements, they need to have these kind of, you know, this kind of vision uh, of what they want. So that is uh, one need for a utopian project. And the other thing is that because we have a, you know, we are Marxists, but we are critical of uh, this Promethean Marxist tradition, uh, which does not care about environmental problems are about animals and animal rights and these other uh, problems. And we draw instead from this utopian socialist tradition 
which was more prominent in the 18th and, and early 19th century. And we find a, a lot of inspiration from that tradition because that was a moment when lots of uh, activists were, were socialists and vegetarians and cared about animal rights. And we want to revive that, that tradition of, of both being adventurous and saying what we what kind of society we want instead of this strange Marxist um, you know uh, kind of uh, code of silence about the uh, society they want to create and and we want to also uh, connect with this forgotten tradition that uh, you know produced so many interesting and insightful thinkers and, and people I mean we I mean in the last chapter we talk about uh, you know, a Jacobin you know, revolutionary in the French Revolution who was a vegetarian. We talk about Frankenstein and Mary Shelley and, and all these other uh, people who were part of this tradition. And, and, and Noirat himself who counted himself as a utopian socialist. So that's that's why we have a utopian uh, part of the book. And it's not, as, I think, a wishy-washy, like impossible uh, you know, silly kind of politics, but we think utopian politics is a very practical one. I mean, it takes, it's serious work to imagine what should society look like? How should we govern ourselves without markets? Like, what is equality? What is, what is a society without uh, a constantly worsening environmental crisis look like, right? Those are serious problems we have to think about, and these are all utopian problems to solve. Yeah, well, like I said, I really enjoyed the book. I really enjoyed talking with both of you. Is there anything else either of you want to add before we go? Thanks for having us on the show. And it's been a real honor. And, you know, uh, and thanks so much for your support in our project. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you both for coming on. That was Troy Viteze and Drew Pendergrass. You can pre-order the book. It's called Half Earth Socialism. And it comes out April 12th. 2022. If you enjoy this episode, uh, as I said at the start, please help get the word out any way you can. Um, if you particularly enjoyed it, you can sign up for my free email newsletter. The link is in the episode description, and you will get each episode into your email inbox each week. Um, if you really, really enjoyed it, you can consider supporting this podcast on Patreon, a small monthly fee to um, yeah, basically just help keep this podcast going. And there are some small perks at each level, including a book club for those who subscribe at the so-called Lorex tier and above. One last note is that some of these issues I have personally written before. So if you are interested in uh, Half Earth as a concept in particular, I've included some links in the episode description. Uh, I reviewed one of E.O. Wilson's books about this concept a few years back. Uh, so I put that in there, as well as another article about Half-Earth. Um, and then if you are interested in some of that discussion about how to think about the boundary, if any, between humans and nature, uh, culture and nature, uh, that's some of that is actually stuff we talked about in the first episode of this podcast, an interview with Emma Maris about how to think about the definition of wild. Uh, but it's also stuff that I, I wrote about in more detail um, in, a, in an essay from a couple years back that uh, is called Nature Defends Itself. It was in Boston Review, and if you are interested, the link is in the episode description. All right, and if you are interested, that's okay too. Just keep your eyes and ears open for the next episode of this podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you.